I miss Christmas. I love nearly everything about Christmas. Uh, It always seems to come and go way too fast for me. I love Christmas songs. I love the smell of my tree. I love all the beautiful decorations that my wife puts up around the house. I really miss Christmas. But perhaps the thing I miss the most about Christmas are the lights. I love Christmas lights. Whether they're on trees or on houses or in my office, I love Christmas lights. And so the good news, at least for me and for all other Christmas lovers, is that thanks to the Gospel of John, we get to sort of revisit Christmas for the next two weeks. Although admittedly much more so next week than than today. Because our next... Two sermon texts uh, will explore these theological themes that are crucially important to what we remember at Christmas time. And the theme we're going to see here today is that of Jesus being metaphorically spoken of as light coming into a dark world. The Bible loves to use the metaphors of light and darkness, and this is especially the case around Jesus. We are supposed to see Jesus as light breaking forth into the dark. And that is why lights have become so popular and so important during the Christmas season. When we put up beautiful lights and we turn them on at nighttime, we are symbolizing the very heart and soul of Christmas, which is that a beautiful light has pierced through our darkness. As a matter of fact, this is not some clever American thing. All the way in the Old Testament, it was clear from the beginning to think of the Messiah as being light shining in darkness. And the reason I say that is because perhaps the most popular Christmas text on the face of the planet is Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. On his shoulders will be the government, his name shall be Wonderful Counselor. You know the text. But how does that begin? Remember, that's the last half of the text. How does Isaiah chapter 9 begin? Let me remind you. The people who walked in darkness have seen great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Right? From the very beginning, long before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem, we were to think of the Messiah as light piercing the darkness. And since John is about to begin telling us about this word of God we saw last week coming into the world, it would make sense to us that he would use the metaphor of light and dark. So let's see how John utilizes the light and darkness of Christmas. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 4 through 13. And when you are there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1. Verses 4 through 13, thus saith the Lord. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated.
When I was in high school, every teacher's mortal enemy was a little website called Cliff Notes. And there are other versions of it, Spark Notes. You, you might know it under a different name. There's lots of different websites that do the same thing. But Cliff Notes was this website where you could find basically every popular book of all the books that, that are common to be taught in schools, you can find that book on Cliff Notes. And what Cliff Notes is going to do is it's going to give you a summary of the plot of the book, and then it's even going to share with you some of the important themes and discussion points of the book. And the reason teachers hated this so much was because this allowed kids to not actually read the book that was assigned to them. They could just go read the Cliff Notes version and read about the themes, and a lot of times they would still know a lot about the book and be able to carry a conversation in class, even though they hadn't actually read it. It was a summary of the text and an overview of some of the important themes, and so it was a plague to English teachers. However, um, we can think of, without the negative connotations, uh, versus really the entire prologue of John, you can almost think of as the Cliff Notes version of the whole book. The prologue of John is basically the Cliff Notes version of all of John. And I think this is especially the case with our passage today, verses 4 through 13. What John is doing is giving us a very, very, very brief very general overview of the primary message of his book. What happens in this book and what are we supposed to take away from it? What are the important themes of the book and what happens in the book, right? That's what Cliff Notes does and that's what John's doing here. What happens in the book of John and what are some of the important themes along the way? That's what John has given us in this text. And so we're going to look at both of those today, but we're going to primarily focus on the themes and these are themes that, theological themes that are going to be repeated throughout the book. And then at the end, we will be able to summarize them really, really briefly. So if it feels like a lot, because we're going to look at a lot of different themes, if it feels a little overwhelming, it'll be, it'll be summarized very, very quickly. But nonetheless, I think in this little Cliff Notes version of the Gospel of John, we are given eight very, very important themes that are going to show up whenever we get to them in different parts of the book. And so we need to be aware of them now so that we can recognize them when we get there, right? So a lot of different themes as we just sort of work through the text. And I think one of the important, one of the most important themes of the Gospel of John that we found in our text today is what's called the exclusivity of Christ. Theme number one is the exclusivity of Christ. Let me explain what we mean by that and where I'm getting it from. Read verse four with me. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So John introduces us to life, and we're going to cover more about what that means in the next point. But for now, we can just momentarily say life is obviously a good thing, right? Life is the good thing. And we know that, not just sort of intuitively, but we know that especially because he immediately goes on to describe it as light of men. There is light that we need. We need light. We need to see in this life is the light of men. So by metaphorically describing this life as light of men, we know that life is really important. Okay, so we've got this really important thing, life. It's something everyone needs. It's something everybody wants. And John begins right away by telling us where it can be found. Where can the light of men be found? Where can life be found? And where does John locate it? In him. In the word. In the Son, in Jesus. John is telling us that if you want life, you can't go anywhere but Christ to find it. It is only found in the Word of God, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what we mean by that fancy phrase, the exclusivity of Christ. 
We mean that outside of Christ, there is no life. Christ is exclusive to life. There's no additions. It's Christ and Christ alone where life is found. In other words, to put it in the most plain words I can, there is no salvation outside of Christ. You cannot find life because it is only found in Him. John hammers this away again in verse 9. Read verse 9 with me. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So Christ is not only described by John as light, he is described as the true light. So there's a couple implications there. The first implication is that there's only one light to be found, right? Because he uses a definite article, not an indefinite article. In other words, he doesn't say Christ is a light. There's lots of lights out there and Christ is one of them. He's a light. No, he's the light. He's the only one. But he also tells us he's the true light. Implication being that if you do think you found another light, it's false. It's not actually light. There's only one true light and it's in him. It's in the word. It's in the son. It's in Jesus Christ. John teaches us the exclusivity of Christ. This is a major claim, by the way. Uh, if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's a basic claim. But to every non-Christian throughout the history of the world, this is an audacious claim. To claim to be the one and only true light. So, in other words, because notice, think about it. What John is doing is he's telling us we do not have permission to think of Jesus as some mere religious leader. Most, what do religious leaders do? What do religious leaders and gurus and philosophers do? They try to discover the light. And then once they've discovered it, they try to teach you. They try to point you to the light. That's my job. My job is to try to point you to the light. We point people to the light. Jesus did not come so much to point you to the light, but to be the light. He didn't come to be a religious philosopher to point you to the light. He came to say, I'm the one the religious philosophers have been looking for. I am the light. This is an incredibly audacious claim. And not only am I the light, I'm the only one. I'm the only thing you can be looking for. If you're not looking for me, you're wrong. It's an offensive, audacious claim. He is claiming to be exclusive to life. And as I said, this is going to be a major theme throughout the entire book, but it's probably said nowhere clearer than in the very famous words from John 14 where Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So be prepared as we go through the Gospel of John to see this theme over and over again that there is no salvation outside of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ. But that leads us to the other thing we need to talk about is this theme of life, or what I'm going to call eternal life. The second theme brought up in John 1, which will be repeated throughout the book, is this theme of eternal life. Look at verse 4 with me again. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John loves, throughout his gospel, to speak of life, or most of the times, eternal life. In evangelicalism, we tend to prefer the phrase salvation. Like, we ask people questions like, are you saved? We tell people, Jesus saved me, I've been saved. We like, we like the word saved. We like the word salvation. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible uses that word all the time. Even in the Gospel of John, that term is used. So I'm not criticizing that. But I just want us to be aware that 
the word salvation is not the only word for that concept that the Bible offers us. There's lots of different ways to talk about what we call salvation. And John's favorite way to talk about salvation is to talk about eternal life. And I would argue that calling it eternal life helps us to understand it at a really intimate and deep level. It helps us better to understand the relationship between salvation and Christ himself. Because what we just covered is that life is not outside of Christ, it's in Christ. And so this means that, that uh, in other words, salvation, don't think of salvation like this. I think it's easy to think of it like this. It's easy to think of salvation as like this thing that God created and then gave to us. Right? Like this present. God made this salvation and then gave it to us. But that's really not the picture of salvation. Salvation is the life of the word. It's always existed. It's not like this created thing that God gives us. It's the life of Christ. So when we think of salvation, you don't want to so much think of like a gift being given to you. Metaphorically, that is what it is. But on a more specific level, you are not receiving a gift so much as you are participating in the life of Christ. You are joining to Christ and now that you belong to Christ, He has by nature this eternal life and you now get to share in it. You get to participate in the life of Christ. That's what salvation is. It's not this thing God made and gave to you. It's this eternal thing that you jump into. You join with the eternal life that is in Christ. And that's why words like participation are actually really important in theology. Salvation is participation in the life of Christ. And that's not meant to be this like obscure, metaphysical, monkish talk. That's supposed to be very plain biblical language that we are participating in the life of Christ. That's what salvation is. He has eternal life and he brings us into it. That's why John loves this concept of eternal life. And this is why we have we stress union with Christ. If salvation is joining with the life of Christ, then now point number one makes sense. Why can't you be saved outside of Christ? Because salvation is participating in his eternal life. So it makes sense that he's the only way to salvation because his life is salvation. And that is why the only way a person can be saved is when they are united to Christ. And once a person is united to Christ, they participate in his eternal life life. And this is a theme which comes up and you could probably make an argument for every chapter of the Gospel of John, but there's certainly one verse above all other verses that makes this point pretty clear. You probably have it memorized. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, there's your union, should not perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel in a nutshell eternal life in Christ. However, there's an unfortunate darker theme we have to discuss as we move to our third theme. We've discussed some really joyful themes so far, right? The Christ is the only way to salvation. Christ gives us his eternal life. But if we're going to talk about salvation and life, if we're going to talk about light, then that implies something. It implies that we need it. If Christ offers life then the implication is that we're dead. <laughs> if Christ's life is light of men, then that implies we're darkness. We're in the dark. And so that leads to exactly what is our third theme, a very important one for John, which is the sinfulness of men. The, the, the very, the overwhelming, 
widespread sinful condition of men, the sinfulness of men, is going to be an important theme in John. Look at verse 5 with me. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Mankind is not presented uh, by the Apostle John the way it used to be presented by Disney movies. Uh, I would argue that secular culture presents mankind in a whole new light today because of our new racial theories, but that's for another day and hour. But certainly while I was growing up, uh, secular world was, the secular world was very, very clear that human beings are generally good people. Right? We're all, for the most part, we're all born with good hearts. No, not for everyone is born with a good heart. Everyone is born pure. And most people fulfill that. Most people live good, honest, decent lives. And yeah, we have a couple bad apples here and there that do some really wicked things. But generally speaking, the world is full of light. The world is full of goodness and hope and joy. But the Bible does not have that kind of flowery picture of mankind. Not after the fall, at least. Rather, John prefers to think of the world metaphorically as darkness. The world is dark. The world is ignorant and evil. It is not good. It is not joyful. It is not pleasant. This is a dark and wicked place which is devoid of any light. But it's important that we understand that John is using this metaphorically. He's, he's not just merely, when he talks about we being in darkness, he's not just talking about like not knowing things. That's oftentimes how, you know, we talk about I'm, I was in the dark. where We're saying I didn't know. But John is not just talking about being ignorant of things. In other words, please don't think John is presenting mankind as like this neutral agent where we don't know God, but if we did know him, like we would embrace him and love him. We just, we're in the dark. We need the evidence. We need the light to be shown. No, because what does he say in verse 5? The darkness is not just this neutral agent. It is actively trying to overcome the light. Thankfully, by the grace and power of God, it can't. But the darkness is fighting back. The darkness is not this neutral agent just waiting to be illuminated. It's hostile. It's evil. It's resisting the light. Darkness is actively opposed. We see this in our world today. People don't seem very neutral to Christianity. They hate it. They hate you. This is clear ever since the first fall of mankind. Jesus himself experienced this darkness as the gospel of John is going to tell us and as John hints at in our very text. Look at verses 10 through 11 with me. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is a tragedy in these two verses. Don't overlook how horrible this is. Here we have in the first verse, John reminds us, the creator, the one who made these people, he fashioned these very people in their mother's womb. He came to them, his, their creator, and they rejected him. And we're going to find out what that means to reject him. How did they reject him? They killed him. They killed their own creator. And if that's not bad enough, John reminds us he didn't just come to people in general. He came to a very special, important group. His own people. The Jewish people. You, if there was anyone in, living in the darkness who should have embraced Christ, it should have been the Jews. He is their Messiah. He is the fulfillment of their scriptures. He's the one their God promised to them. And he shows up, and it's not like the Gentiles rejected him, but they loved him. By and large, they hated him too. They were just as involved in his crucifixion. You could argue they were more involved in his crucifixion than any other people group on the face of the earth. They hated him. 
John understands our world is a dark and wicked place. It is a dark and wicked place. And that's going to manifest itself all throughout the Gospel of John. For example, in John 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Again, you see, this is a dark world. We love sin. We love our wicked ways and we despise the light. That's who we are. It's a very dark place this side of heaven. Christ came into the world to save it because it needed saving. That's the point. It needs saving. The wickedness of men is our third theme that John introduces us to. But there's a fourth theme. This one might sound kind of bizarre at first, but it's actually pretty important. And it's the fourth theme that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John is this theme of attestation. Attestation. When you attest to something, when you bear witness to something, when you try to verify the truthfulness of something, you attest to its truthfulness. The theme of attestation, believe it or not, is actually a beloved theme of the Gospel of John. In other words, that when the light comes into the world, it doesn't come by itself. It doesn't come without its witnesses. It doesn't come without things to verify it, to point to it and say, look, there's the light. The light is here. Christ came with witnesses. One of the most important witnesses is John the Baptist. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. And remember, this is not the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. Not, not an apostle, but a prophet. John the Baptist, the prophet. We're going to be introduced to him very soon. But here we get a brief introductory remark in verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The people of Israel were about to experience um, a, a pretty dramatic changing of gears. Uh, the transition from the Old Covenant to the New was going to be fairly abrupt and fairly dramatic. And that can be hard. It can be hard to, to live under that kind of drastic religious change. And so God sent John to sort of smooth that transition. To He sent John, who was prophesied to come in the Old Testament, by the way. He sent John to come and sort of smooth out that transition. Prepare people for baptism. Prepare people to receive Jesus Christ. But the, we'll, we'll talk more about John later. But the important thing is, it's obviously God sent him. It was important for God, whatever his reasons were, that Christ doesn't just show up unannounced. God wanted witnesses. God wanted things and people and persons to say, the light has come. Make way. The king has arrived. The Gospel of John loves this concept of attestation, of witnesses. And, and, and to prove it's not just John the Baptist alone, I want to show you a lengthy verse where this idea comes up again. Notice what Jesus says. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. There's a lot there, and we'll obviously cover it whenever we get to that passage. But all I wanted you to say is you see how important this theme that Jesus brings up of is is bearing witness to the truth of Christ. John the Baptist bears witness to the truth of Christ. Christ's miracles bear witness. The works the Father has given him bear witness to the truth of Christ. So I want us to know that as we read through the Gospel of John, we are not being called to believe um, an unexpected word without testimony. An unexpected light without witness. No, the light came into the world and it was announced and it was vindicated. It was proved. It was attested to. Attestation is important to John. There's something else though that's very important. This one's pretty obvious, but it's in the text, so we need to cover it. And that is the incarnation. That God took on flesh is a very important theme throughout the Gospel of John. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. That the creator of the world, the Son of God, the one who pre-existed creation, came into the world is a chief doctrine, not just of this book, but of our entire Christian faith. In other words, like I briefly talked about already, John does not want us just to think of Jesus as just another prophet sent from God. Right? We had Moses, and we had David, and we had John the Baptist, and now we got Jesus, and we'll see who comes next. He's not just this really important guy sent from God. He is God in flesh. He's better than Moses. He's better than David. He's better than John. He is God in the flesh. This is something that's obviously key to every word of this entire book. We're going to really talk about it next week where John introduces us to the incarnation. But that Christ came from heaven to the earth is not just something we're going to look at in John 1. It comes up more than once throughout this book. Let me give you a couple examples from John 6. Jesus speaking to the crowd says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? This was a very difficult thing for people to believe. That Jesus, who was born of Mary, did not originate from hers alone. He pre-existed her. He came down from heaven. The incarnation is vitally important to the gospel of John. That's, we're over halfway done. And remember, we're going to summarize all this at the end. Our sixth theme that John introduces us to as we walk through uh, the Cliff Notes version is one, we preached about this in Ephesians a while ago. And if you recalled then, I said, I hate this word. It's a bad word. It, it's not an accurate title for the theology, but it's unfortunately what's stuck. So I, I go with it. John introduced us to this little theology that's very controversial in the church today known as replacement theology. Replacement theology. Look at verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One of our great Christmas hymns, 
As a matter of fact, we'll probably sing Christmas hymns next week since we're talking about the Incarnation. One of the ones, if we do, that we will likely sing, one of my favorites, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And one of the, my favorite lines is there is we, we affirm light and life to all he brings. Life and light to all he brings. We've already covered that, right? Jesus is the life and his life is the light of men. But what I want to emphasize here is all. Life and light to all he brings. Or as John says in the verses that we just read, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus came into the world to give light and life to all, to everyone. Now, why do I emphasize that? Because what's being emphasized by John here is Jesus is not just Messiah for the Jewish people. Jesus did not come to give life and light to Israel only. He did not come to give life and light to the Jewish people only. He came to give life and light to everyone. To everyone. The conception of the Jewish people in John's day is that whenever the Messiah comes, he's not coming for the world, he's coming for us. He's coming for the children of God. He's coming for the covenant people of God. And he's coming to make Israel the glory of the world again. This is what Jesus' own disciples ask him before he ascends to heaven. Is now the time when you restore the glory to Israel? And what is Jesus' response? That's not for you to know. But you're going to go be my witnesses in the whole world. In other words, no. I'm here to restore the glory of the world. Not of Israel. John is introducing us to this monumental shift in the covenants where we are no longer given permission when we hear the term covenant people of God, who should come to your mind? It's not national Israel. When you hear the term the chosen people of God, who should come into your minds? It's not the Jews. Who are the children of God? Verse 13. Verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Believers are God's children. Believers are God's covenant people. Believers are God's chosen people. It's not an ethnicity thing anymore. And, and, and he hammers that in verse 13 when he says, who is it that belonged to God now? It is not... Uh, those of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. God chooses his people. Your, your DNA doesn't. Your ancestry doesn't. Your parents' decision to get together and create you doesn't. John is introducing us to this very important thing that Jesus Christ came to be the Savior of the world, not just of Israel. He came, so he did come for his covenant people. He did come for the chosen people. He did come for the children of God. But the children of God go beyond the borders of Israel. This is a very important theme. Really throughout the entire New Testament, the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians, the book of Romans, hit this and talk about this at great length. But it's a very important theme even to John. Let me tell you about it. When Jesus evangelizes a Samaritan woman, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
Notice how the Samaritan woman is still thinking very ethnically. Well, you're a Jewish prophet, so I know what you're going to tell me as a Samaritan. You're going to tell me that I can't worship God because only the covenant people can worship God. And that has to be done as an Israelite in Jerusalem. And I'm not in Jerusalem. I'm not even allowed in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, woman, let me tell you something. I'm not interested in people worshiping me in Jerusalem. I'm interested in people worshiping me all around the world. Who is it that I'm coming for? Those who worship according to the flesh? No, those who worship according to the Spirit. John is introducing us to this very important theme that Christ is the Messiah of all. He is the Savior of the world. Life and light to all He brings. Our seventh theme is salvation by faith. Very, very important theme in the Gospel of John. Look at verse 12. This is related, if, if, if ethnicity doesn't determine who are the children of God, then what does? Right? What does? And that's the answer to our next question, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The life that Christ has for you, the life that is in Christ that you need, can only be accessed by faith. It is by those who believe who become children of God. Now, I love what John does, though, here. John, again, really helps us break this concept down at a very deep level. He sort of qualifies, what does belief mean? Because notice what he says in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, and then he clarifies, that's what it means to believe, who believed in his name. So when you believe in Jesus, another way to think about that is you are receiving Jesus. You're receiving him. That's what faith in Christ means. And that language is really important because it tells us something about the nature of saving faith. And that is faith is reception. It's not action. It is technically something you do. But the way the Bible talks about it, you're not really supposed to think of it as like this active work. It's a passive work. You're not going out and doing something. You're not going out and getting something. You're sitting back and receiving something. Faith is passive. And here's why this is important. This is why the Bible can so comfortably oppose faith to works. The Bible all throughout opposes faith and works. You are saved by faith and not by works of the law. But what people who deny that will often say, faith is a work. It's something you do. God commands it. You do it. That's a work. You're saved by work. You're not saved by faith. You're saved by the work of faith. So you deny your own position. But according to biblical thinking, that's really not true. That's semantics. Faith is described as a passive action of reception. So it's not really a work in the way we think of works. And the reason this is so important and so powerful is because this allows us now to no longer think of the gospel, to think of salvation as transactional. Salvation is not transactional. In, in other words, when you got saved... God was not paying you back for this amazing thing you did called faith. Right? Like you, you went to the register of God and said, here's a $100 faith. And God said, wow, that's impressive. Here's salvation. Your faith is not what merits your salvation. Your faith is not what bought your salvation. Because faith is not a work. It's passive reception. In other words, the logic according to John goes the other way. You don't offer God your faith and then he offers you salvation. God throws salvation at you and faith is how you receive it. The gospel is not transactional. It's not a reward. 
It's not a, faith is not a merit. God bestows salvation, and faith is the only way a soul has to embrace that, to catch it, to receive it, whatever metaphor you want to use. To use really, really, if you want to be really like fancy and use really technical theological lingo, theologians like to describe this, that Christ, or grace, the grace of God, is the principal cause of salvation, while faith is the instrumental cause of salvation. Grace is the principal cause. Faith is the instrumental cause. This becomes important. Like, how would you, don't answer out loud, how would you respond if someone says, what are you saved by, grace or faith? What are you saved by? Are you saved by Christ or are you saved by your faith? Well, the answer is kind of both. How do we articulate that though? Christ or grace is the principal cause. Faith is the instrumental cause. In other words, what that means is that Christ is the one who does the saving. Your faith doesn't do the saving. Your faith isn't powerful enough to do that. Hate to break it to you. Your faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. The grace of God saves you. But faith is the vehicle that gets Christ's saving power to you. So faith saves you only in the sense that it's the vehicle that gets what saves you to you. And if you think I'm just being really like philosophical and semantic, I'm not. The, the Apostle Paul makes this very distinction. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And what is the result of being saved by grace, principal cause, through faith, instrumental cause? Now we can say that this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace. That's the principal cause. Grace is what saves you. Faith is how grace gets to you. So you are saved by grace through faith. And that's what we mean whenever we say you're saved by faith. Your faith is not what's saving you. Your faith is what's accessing that which saves you. And that's why John here describes faith as reception. You don't go out and get Christ. You receive him. You don't earn him. You accept him. He comes to you. Faith is receptive, and that's why faith is not a work, and that's why when we're saved by faith, we are saved by grace. And that we are saved by our faith is an incredibly important theme throughout the rest of this book. Here's just one example. It comes up again in John 6, where Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you want Jesus' eternal life, believe in him. Come to Christ by faith, and you will be saved. Let us look at our final theme, and then we'll, we'll summarize. I'll, we'll be brief here. The final theme, verse 13, is this theme of regeneration. Regeneration. Look at verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's interesting that here, uh, the, the, John describes eternal life, salvation, becoming a child of God, all of these things he's been brought up already, as being born of God. That's another way to think of salvation, is you have been born of God. That's kind of weird, though, because you've already been born. So it sounds like, in order to be saved, I have to be born again. I was already born, but now I have to be born of someone else. So salvation sounds like we have to be born again. And by the way, that's exactly one of John's themes throughout the book. Jesus says in John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The reason this is important is because what John is going to tell us is that we don't want to think of eternal life as merely a change of status. 
Like you're this person who didn't have life and then you received Christ by faith and now you have life. Right? You just, you've changed your status. That's part of it. But eternal life is something we participate in now. It's not just something we're waiting for. It's something we already have. So if you're already in Christ, if you're already, and to some degree, participating in eternal life, then you can expect, big fancy word, change. You can expect change. If salvation was merely a change of status, then you wouldn't change as a person. But salvation is more than that. It is participating in this powerful, glorious life of Christ. And so it brings about something new. It brings about a new creature, a new creation. And we call this, in the theological world, regeneration. You have to be turned back on. You have to be generated again. You have to be born again. And that's going to be a big theme throughout John, that salvation changes us. It doesn't just make us children of God. It also makes us look like children of God. Now, I understand we covered a lot of theological ground here, right? Eight themes is quite a lot to look at. But the good news is that John wove these themes in so masterfully, so subtly, so artistically, that it's really not hard for us to just summarize, oh my goodness, like you just, oh, you talk so fast and you said so much, like what should I get out of this? Like if someone asked me, what did I learn in church today? What could I possibly say? Do I need to memorize these eight themes? Well, let me give you a Cliff Notes version of the Cliff Notes version. Let me summarize John's summary. What is this passage really about? That Jesus Christ came into the world to give eternal life to all who receive him by faith. This is not just the theme of this message, but this is a really a pretty good summary statement of the whole book of John. What is the whole book of John about? It's about Jesus Christ coming into the world to give eternal life to all who receive him by faith. If you want to know what this passage is about, it's simply this. Come to Christ. He is the Savior of all. Believe in Christ and you will participate in his eternal life. You will be transformed. Jesus Christ came into the world to give eternal life to all who receive him by faith.